When I was six years old, I was introduced to the occult by my grandmother. One night, she brought out a Ouija board. How many of you know what a Ouija board is? All right. If you don't, it is uh, supposedly a means to communicate with the dead. Now, written on the board are all the letters of the alphabet and the numerals 0 through 9 and the words yes and no. And then there is something called a planchette, which is a little uh, heart-shaped piece of wood or plastic that has a circle in it, a little window, uh, which, um, and what you do is you sit on one side of the board and the spiritualist, or your grandmother, sits on the other side of the board and you each put your fingers on the planchette. And then grandma closes, I mean the spiritualist closes her eyes, concentrates, and then you ask your question, well first you ask your question. And of course you're gonna ask a big question. Am I ever gonna get married? Who should I marry? Uh, what kind of job should I have? All those kind, you know. But I do remember being scared. Now, 50 years later, I had my second encounter with the occult through a Slovak. A friend of ours wanted to show me part of her daily routine. And so we sat at her table and she pulled out a very colorful deck of cards. And she did a tarot reading for herself. And then she asked me if I would like to do a tarot reading and I declined. She said she understood, but then she did a reading for me. And I don't remember the specifics. It was something about a glorious prince, but anyway. Um, now, why do reasonable, lovely people like my grandmother and our, and our Slovak friend, why do they turn to Ouija boards or tarot cards or fortune tellers or the psychic network? Well, I think it's because we all want certainty. We want to have control and we want to be successful. At least we want to avoid disaster in our lives. And if the dead could help us out, then, well, that's worth a try. Now, of course, you know this. God forbids divination, even with your grandma. But he, but he doesn't leave us in the dark. He promises guidance, and he promises the very thing that we crave, and yet there is a difference between his guidance and the guidance that you get from the occult. I have new glasses since the last time I preached, and I can't see my, I can't read with these on, so I'm going to take those off. Now, I don't think that you sophisticated Shreveportites or Shreveporters or Shreveportans, port what, what do you call yourselves? Shreveportians? All right. I don't think you sophisticated citizens of Shreveport are tempted by Ouija boards and tarot cards, but I mentioned them in order to provide for us a contrast. They help us to understand the way God guides us and the way that we should seek his guidance, the way that we should seek everything for him, from him. Now here's the contrast. The occult is transactional. You pay the fortune teller. She gives you an answer. You may never even see her again, unless it's your grandma. 
The, the occult is mechanical. You place your fingers on the planchette, you deal the cards, you get an answer. On the other hand, guidance from God is relational. It's very personal. You don't simply get answers from God. In fact, I don't even think you can just get answers from God. You get God. You have to know him and you have to draw near to him to be led by him, to be fed by him, to be protected by him, to be comforted by him. And prayer is the way that we seek from God everything that he has promised in his word to give us. Prayer is the way that we commune with God, the way that we know God, the way that we worship God, and the way that he guides us. Now, in Psalm 25, we're going to hear David ask God to guide him, but we're going to hear a lot more than that. Now, this prayer, Psalm 25, should shape the way that we draw close to God ourselves and the way that we seek his guidance. And as you listen to this, you're going to hear David declare his faith and confidence in God. You're going to hear him make several requests. He's going to ask God to protect him from his enemies. He'll ask him to guide him. He'll ask him to forgive his sins to comfort him in his loneliness and sorrow. And he's going to remember God's covenant and his promises and and God's character as well. Now, this is what we need to see in this prayer, that David weaves his faith and his requests together with truth about God, God's character. And God's character is the reason that he can trust him and ask him for his help. Now, everything in prayer is interconnected, all of this. It's interdependent. And with that in mind, I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 25. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. 
My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Be seated, please. Did you feel a kind of bouncing around in this prayer? David lifts his soul to God in a time of trouble. Already in verse 2, he asked God to defend him from his enemies. In verses 19 and 20, we find out that these are violent enemies. They are full of hatred. And in verses 16 and 18, we see the effects of their persecution on David's heart. He is lonely, afflicted, and distressed. And things are getting worse. His troubles are enlarged. They're getting to be so big, they're the only thing that he can see. But facing such adversity, he comes to God expressing trust and confidence. He reminds himself that those who trust in God will not be disappointed. He's leaning on God's covenant and his promises. And surrounded by these troubles, having reaffirmed his his faith in God, his trust in God, he asks for guidance in verses 4 and 5. But as soon as that request is out of his mouth, he declares that God is his Savior and that he waits for him all day long. Now to wait on God means to expect him to answer, just like when you ring the doorbell, you stand there because you, and and you wait because you expect an answer, and he's waiting on God. And as soon as he uh, declares this expectation, in verses 6 and 7, he asks God to forgive his sins because of the kind of God he is. So the whole prayer is like this. David is like a pinball. He's bouncing from faith to distress, from cries for help to remembering God's promises, from confessing his sin from con- to confident expectation. And so this must be a spontaneous stream of consciousness prayer, right? Wrong. This psalm is an acrostic. The first word of each verse, each successive verse, begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and so on. This this prayer that bounces from rail to rail is actually carefully crafted. Now, why is this heart cry such an elaborate, in such an elaborate art form? Well, probably one reason is to help people to memorize it. People who speak Hebrew, that is, uh, to memorize it because they can remember that first, the first word of each verse begins with the, the next letter of the alphabet. 
And that's the way these psalms were used. People memorized them and people prayed them. They prayed them in the days of David. They prayed them in the days of Jonah. They prayed them in the days of Jesus. Jesus prayed them even from the cross. The church prayed them in the book of Acts. The church still prays these psalms because God gave us these prayers to pray. Now, it isn't an acrostic in English, obviously. So we're at a little bit of a disadvantage, unless you want to learn Hebrew. Uh, But still, we can become familiar with these psalms, not just this one, but all 150 of them over the course of our lives. Not this week, but over the course of our lives, becoming immersed in them, and they teach us how to pray. We need God's guidance. We need his protection. We need his comfort. We need his forgiveness every day. And so, how does Psalm 25 For starters, how does Psalm 25 teach us to ask for them? Let me just warn you at this point that I am not going to tell you anything that you probably have not heard before, but that doesn't mean you don't need to hear it again. The first thing is very obvious, and that is that David draws near to God. He's in trouble, and he goes to God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, of course, he asked for protection from his enemies, but he asked for a whole lot more in this prayer, as, we, as we've seen. He knows that God is always at work in his life and that nothing happens to him by accident. It all happens with purpose. Even the bad stuff that happens to him, no matter how bad it is, is happening with some purpose. And so his trouble makes him stop and reflect. Why is my life so hard? Now he knows God uses trouble often to get our attention. So he stops and reflects. He he thinks about his life. He examines his conscience and he remembers his sins. And he asks God to remember, not his sins, but to remember his mercy and steadfast love. He asks God to remember God's own nature. That he is the God who delights to show mercy. So what is David doing? He's not wallowing in his sin. He's not going on and on about what a worm he is. He, he, he knows his sin, but his attention is on God and on God's character. And when we realize our sin, this is how we should pray. We should confess sincerely. Absolutely confess sincerely. We should acknowledge the full evil of our sins. And our sins are evil but not without hope because of the kind of God that we serve. Even when we remember our weakness, even when we remember our wickedness, we must cling to God's character. He is full of mercy and faithful in his love in Jesus Christ. Calvin loved to say, especially when he was preaching on the Psalms, he loved to say that God's disposition is to forgive. It's his nature to be a redeemer and his glory to lift people out of the mud. God has promised to forgive and he will keep his word. And then in the height of his prayer, in the heart of his prayer, in verses 10 to 14, David turns to God's promises. He reminds himself and he reminds God of God's covenant promises, steadfast love, pardon for sin, instruction in the way that we should go, our well-being and care for 
uh, for our, even his care for our children and God's friendship. These are all promises of God and in his covenant. And so what is David doing? In his prayer, he is embracing God by embracing his promises, his comfort, his friendship, his forgiveness. And it's in this intimate context, in this intimate moment, that he asks for guidance. Now think of how we sometimes ask for guidance. We come to some fork in the road of life, one of those big things, and we need to make a decision. And the decision is going to shape the rest of our lives. And we don't want to mess up. Now, you know the big question, should I marry this person? Should I marry anybody? Uh, Which career should I choose? Should I go to college? Which college should I go to? Which job? Which city? Which church? Which Should I move my family to Slovakia? Should I have my parents live with us in our home? These are big decisions. They're hard decisions. And so we, uh, and, and they're stressful. It's stressful to make these decisions. And we compound the stress of those, of making those decisions when we look for answers in a pagan way. Now, I don't mean tarot cards and Ouija boards and fortune tellers. I mean in our prayers. We can ask, we can seek those answers in a pagan way in our prayers to God. And I need to explain that. We can look to God for guidance in a way that is impersonal and transactional. We ask him, but we want the answer. We don't want him. J.I. Packer says we want him to give us the map, but what he wants is to walk the path with us and be our guide. We'd be happy if he just gave us some kind of clear sign like he did to uh, Gideon or something like that. Something that would make it really clear so I can't mess things up. Life would be so much easier if he would just do that. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but God isn't interested in making your life easier all the time. He's interested in you. He made you to have communion with him. And so his interest is in drawing close to you and you're drawing close to him. He is not a genie in a bottle. He wants to walk with us through all of life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And David knows that. And that's what he really, really wants. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. When he says he wants to know God's way and path, he's not talking about some hidden secret destiny divorced from his relationship to God. He's talking about knowing God in God's word. He's talking about knowing God in God's truth, knowing God in God's will, knowing God in his commands. He wants God to teach him how to live according to God's word in his desperate situation. He wants to do exactly what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 5.10. He wants to find out what pleases the Lord. Now he still has to decide, we still have to decide whether to marry this person or what career or whether to go to, as a missionary to Slovakia or whatever it is. But whether we marry this person or not, the important thing is how 
how can we live in a way that pleases God? Whether you're a plumber or a preacher or a peasant or a king, this, how, how can we be faithful to God? Now, you see, I hope you see how this is different from that pagan way of seeking an answer, seeking guidance from God. It's not the magic you're looking for. It's not as easy as turning the eight ball over. But it's, but it's much more rewarding. It's relational and personal. It's so personal for David that he asks, in, the context, in this context, he asks God to forgive his sins. Now, what does forgiveness have to do with seeking God's guidance? Well, I'm not sure, but, but, I, but I like to compare it to other relationships, close relationships that we have, a close friendship. Suppose you do something that offends a close friend of yours, hurts, hurts them. And when you realize your fault, you confess to them, you ask them to forgive you and, you, and you seek reconciliation. And if you really love this person, you might say something like, how can I keep from hurting you like that again? In other words, you want, you want that closeness, you want that love, you want the good of the other person, you, and you don't want to threaten that. You don't want to risk the intimacy of that relationship. And so you want to learn how to live in a way that, that is not hurtful, but is helpful to that other person. So David is doing something analogous to that, I think. He sinned, and he asked God to forgive him, but he also says, show me how to live more faithfully. Show me how to live in a way that pleases you. Show me how to not do that again. And then look at verses, uh, at the confidence that he has in, in God in verses 8 and 9. He says, good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. This is why David can confidently ask God for guidance and why we can confidently ask God for guidance. Because God guides sinners. And Quinn reminded us all that's what we are. We know that. God guides sinners. We tend to think of God as someone who punishes sinners. But we don't really honor God if that's our first thought about him. God would much rather teach sinners than punish them. All right, so finally, how does, how does God answer our prayers for guidance? Again, you're not getting any magic. You know that. Lower your expectations or raise your expectations, depending on how you're looking at this. As David says, God teaches the humble his way, and he teaches them through his word. Now, the humble doesn't refer to people who have low self-esteem or think that they're nothings. The humble are those who are teachable, those who want to know God, want to listen to him in his word. David was being humble when he meditated on God's law day and night. The humble, the teachable, ask God to help them to understand his word and teach them how they can live it. Now, you might object that you can study the Bible till you're blue in the face and it still won't t tell you who to marry. It won't tell you which job to take, which, uh, which career to choose, which house to buy. Well, that's true, and it doesn't tell you what to have for lunch today either. 
And that's because God doesn't want you to be a child your whole life. He wants you to grow up. He wants us to mature into men and women who can make decisions that are in line with his will, that are pleasing to him. That's Christian maturity. That's human maturity. He wants you to know him and his ways so well that you can face the most difficult decision in your life and you can make that decision knowing that God is with you. You don't have to, you don't stop praying, you don't stop leaning on him and depending on him, but you grow up in him and you make decisions in him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says that God is determined to conform us into the image of his son. Hebrews chapter 5 describes the son this way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, was teachable. He urgently sought the Father with loud cries and tears, even when he was facing death itself. And you know what he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And as we mature in Christ, we will become more and more like him. In our trouble, we will draw close to the Father, humble ourselves before him, and seek his pleasure. We will commit ourselves to, and, and submit ourselves to his will and to his way. And as we make decisions, we will trust him to guide us as he has promised. Amen.